Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gents, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life. My guest today is Nick Perler, founder, head, sultan, whatever you want to call it. He's running the show at the Perler Wrestling Academy, one of the OG wrestling schools in these fine United States. Enjoy this conversation with Nick, and I hope you do as well. Fan of the week goes to Terrence Mason. That's Terrence Mason underscore on the gram. He's an up-and-coming middleweight in the MMA circuits, and apparently... A listener of the show. So thank you. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please give us a review or rating on whatever podcast app you're on. So if that's the Apple podcast app, just scroll to the bottom. You'll see the stars and click whichever star you deem appropriate. I'm not going to judge, although I will know who did it. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for Nick Perler. We picked this one up talking about Nick Recapping the 2019 World Championships. Peace! I think the most important thing that I've learned over the years, and I see it over and over and over when you look at um, these higher-level events, is how smart and patient and technical the people who win compete and just how they are. And the top Americans, they do the same thing. You know, I think I grew up in wrestling in the late eighties in high school and started in college in 90, 91. And, um, back at those times, it was a lot of preaching about it's just who wants it the most and who's in the better shape. Right. And I still fight that to this day. And I see wrestling as, um, a sport of technique, not that it's not about toughness and being in shape, but it's kind of like, that's just a barrier to entry. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, I have to study hard to get a PhD. Well, no duh, right? <laughs> so let's not just talk about that. So when I watch like the worlds and stuff, I see how, how, how technical and sort of tactical they are. They don't just dive in and attack. And you still hear people like make them tired, wear them down. I mean, you go charging in after, uh, you know, Sit an elite cough? American. Sit a by you, you know? <laughs> yeah, or an elite American or something. So that, that – when I, when I see the world in those matches, I used to see these people who are competing beyond just wrestling hard and tough and physical, 
which still to this day seems to be um, not really at the college level so much, but so heavily preached in high school and youth wrestling. And um, I just don't see it at that level. No, I mean, someone like Sitikoff, who's, as you could tell, my favorite wrestler right now is not an American. He looks like he's almost ready to fall asleep walking out there. He's so calm, so relaxed, and he picks and yeah. chooses moments. But just because he's not out there grinding doesn't mean he's mentally tough because he is mentally tough. You know, he's able to score with five seconds left against Jordan Burroughs, you know, so there's different ways to show that mental toughness outside of yeah. the grind mentality. Well, I, I, I grew up watching Fajayev and Bela Kalazov on VHS tape, and I saw an interview about six or seven years ago. I think a flow did it. Bela Kalazov, they said, you know, in America, we think wrestling's 90% mental. What does, what, what does the, uh, you know, Russia and the former Soviet Union think? And he said, no, no, wrestling is 90% technical, 5% mental, 5% physical. And he had the exact opposite of what we teach in America. And, you know, when they're winning 50-plus percent of the world titles every year and more, a higher percentage of that in the Greco division, I mean, at some point in time, you got to listen, right? No question about it. You yeah. remind me a lot of how Andy Rovat would think about this because he lived over there for a year, and he says the same thing yeah. about, you know, you don't – the running is a big part of it, the sprinting and all that. Yeah but, yeah, but that's like – you get that training through wrestling. He says that when he was living in Osetia – like Basik Kudakov, he never saw him doing like a power clean. He never saw him doing wind sprints. They did it through wrestling. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we do. We have a no running guarantee at our camps. Um, I, I, I actually think it's kind of like maybe, maybe, maybe just, it's just an easy way out, right? So, you know, I have to teach my coaches to teach our system step by step with the, they, they, the cadence, the verbiage, everything's the same, the technique, the steps. But, you know, if we, if we got to run, one out of every three practices a day at my camp, that's 33% less work that we have to do. That's like a teacher plopping a VHS tape in one out of every three days and calling herself a teacher, you know? So I think the running is kind of overdone and the camps just as maybe a, a money waster. But I do think some people run a lot because it's just kind of Americanized, right? So a high school or youth coach will say, we, we're going to run the hallways for the first 30 minutes of every practice. Well, they only have a two-hour practice. So you're basically taking 25% of your practice time. So in a four-year high school career, you have spent one, you spent one out of four years running, if you look at it just, you know, mathematically. Yeah. And I think that time, not that it doesn't help you, but it's not helping you as good as Dance and motion drills, down blocking drills, uh, high, you know, mat returns, um, perfecting perfecting your 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 tilts or how to clear ties. I mean, these other areas, you know. No doubt, and you're seeing that more and more now. Ben Askren, I don't know him at all, but I just you hear about him talking about that. It seems like he believes the same thing, like getting better at wrestling through wrestling. But if we yeah. think about where that mentality of that that grind mentality came from, especially if you grew up in the '80s, it's Gable. Right. And yeah, I, as I mentioned, I'm doing this documentary on on Gable, which is going to come out in the next couple of weeks. What's fascinating to me is that when you get down in the weeds, yeah, there was the crazy work ethic, but he was a master motivator as well. But it's like, yeah. why do you think Iowa was so successful when you know that that's what they did? They were big runners. They were big lifters. Like how, how could yeah. how could how do you balance those two? Because it obviously worked for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I just think the wrestling, the wrestling demographic was different back in the 80s, right? So basically, I mean, right, 
Penn State recruits cadet and junior world champs, right? These kids nowadays are so skilled. So I think back when you're when uh, the rec- the top bleach chip high school recruits were not as good and well trained as they are now, just wrestling hard and tough could beat them. Just like, you know, I always use this as an analogy. If you take a good street fighter and put him in a bar and he gets in a fight, he cannot fight that way. Let's say he was going to compete against Floyd Mayweather. Right. If he goes charging and punching, you know, plus Floyd Mayweather is just too skilled. So I think that, I mean, wrestling's improved, right? Dan Gable is the greatest coach probably ever, right? But he would still be a, the greatest coach ever if he was still younger and coaching because he would have adjusted his, his training methods. I just think that things evolve, right? Yeah. You can't look and say, uh, I graduated in 94. You can't look and say that wrestling was just as hard when I wrestled in college and is now. That would be a stupid thing to say. Phones are better. Cars are better. Uh, you, you look. You look at the world records. Look at the gymnasts. Look at the tricks these gym, these gymnasts are doing. Gymnastics is better. Wrestling's better. So I just think that uh, you know, wrestling's evolved to the point where um, a little bit more patient approach is necessary. Otherwise, you will get burned if you just think I'm going to charge you and attack you and try to wear you down. Right. And I, I've heard you yeah. talk about that before. That the amount of colleges that have D1 wrestling is, you know, it's in the 70s, whereas in the in the 1970s it was in the 200s. And what yeah. you've seen, you've been at you've been at a, the granular level of the youth scene for so long, 18 years. You think that the competition now is better than it's ever been? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, youth in high school. That's what that's our that's our our academy. I would say our academy is 50 50, uh, maybe 60 40. All right, 60% high school, 40% youth. But our camps are probably 70, 30, 70% high school, 30% middle school and youth. But uh, I kind of lump, I kind of lump them all together, right? Mm-hmm. Because unless you're talking about the, um, you know, Colton Schultz, right? He trained with us for years at our, our camps and stuff. You know, he was a world champ and he's at Arizona State now. You know, you can't, you're not going to lump him in as a high school wrestler because he was off the charts. But most high school kids, you come to our camp, they're pretty much no better or worse than the middle school and youth kids. They're all kind of a – it's just a big lump, right? It's called grassroots. But, yeah, I have been at it a long time, and I have definitely seen it improve tremendously. You know, I used to watch David Taylor and stuff when he was nine years old back in the day. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but here we are progressing along, and uh, these kids are just better trained. But uh, I think that – I don't know if the numbers of wrestling are growing, but certainly the training opportunities. And a lot of that this has to do with the internet. You know, I used to be so motivated as a kid that I seriously would just jump up and I would just take off running. I'd go outside and go run. I was so motivated. Yeah. But all I had was a book and I already mastered the moves in the book, right? And we had a home wrestling mat me and my brother would train on. But nowadays, kids can watch the Iranian nationals on YouTube for free. They can watch every Kale Sanderson match for free. And so I think that just the training opportunities are, are better just through technology. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons we have um, 
I love how wrestling's improved so much. Plus, plus camps. Back when I was a kid, camps were five hundred dollars for a week. They're still rad. The, the price of camps has not risen at all. <laughs> and you know, home home mats are cheaper. You, you, we used to struggle to get twenty to to, to thirty matches in the off season. Now I have kids who are getting. 60 or 70 and i'm like dude that's too many you don't need you know what i'm saying right so there's tournaments everywhere it's just uh the opportunities out there so it used to be who had access to the knowledge had the edge now everyone has access to the knowledge so it's who is taking advantage and as the percentage of kids increases who are taking the advantage now the recruiting pool for these college coaches is more and more. It's certainly a buyer's market for these college coaches now, and I've seen that shift over the past six to seven years. That's interesting. And yeah. who could argue with the results? So Team USA at the cadet junior level had a pretty good year this oh, yeah, year. We've had better, but, I mean, it's in, compared to 20 years ago, uh, night and day difference, you know? So yeah. it, it's exciting to see that, and I do want to get into – a little later on, your philosophy, because you've been running you know, the Perler Wrestling Academy, and I know your brother has one in Kansas mm-hmm. City, I believe, but before the academy was even a thing, now they're everywhere, but let's go yeah, way back. Yeah, the first one. Yeah, I mean, in, in like 99, I believe, was your first year, November yeah. of 99. Yep. Um, but let's go back, though, because I'm fascinated by people who are driven and motivated at a young age, and you just hit on the thing I wanted to open with was when you were a kid, you and your twin brother – you guys were so obsessed that like you'd go in the basement after a workout and just set the timer and say, I'm going to do 20 more minutes. And nine times out of 10, you turned the timer off and you kept going. Like where did this like inner drive and, and love for training come from? Okay. So, um, that, I, that I'm not sure. I know that I got criticized in high school once there was a reporter that followed us around for a day and then the dual me and talked to us after the dual me or whatever. Just kind of a big day when they said, write us in newspapers and you're like you know what's it what's it about wrestling that you love so much and i'm like well it's not really about wrestling it's just i want to be massively successful and wrestling is just something that kind of i like and it comes easy to me you know so uh i think i've just always had a drive and once i found wrestling i quit everything else and i dove in on it we sold our four-wheeler and bought a home wrestling mat and we actually used our home wrestling mat you know and it (laughs) was just sort of um it was sort of an, an obsession. And I remember back then we had the USWF magazine and I would flip through the back. I didn't care about articles. I would flip through the back and look at results. And I would see names like Pat Tossie. He, he used to compete against us a lot. And he's now works for the uh, National High School Coaches Association. We're still buddies. Um, Carl Bell for uh, I used to see uh, Kendall Cross, even though we didn't compete. And uh, I guess in the US Open, we, we butted heads once. But he was my teammate in college. Uh, I would see names like Keith Nix, who I never got to compete against, Mark Deal, who I ended up going overseas with uh, my freshman year of high school. So I would see these names, right? Damon Johnson, who I also went overseas with. And I would see these names, and I wanted to be there. And so then we used to go to um, – so then we ended up going to the uh, kids' national tournament in Nebraska, and we got to, we, we got to wrestle those guys, right? Like Kurt, Kurt and Troy Wallman, they were the best back then. And they, my brother and I both went 0-2 at Nationals. This was our third year of wrestling, first year of freestyle. We both went 0-2. This is high school and or middle school? Year, this, is, uh, this is middle school. So middle 13. school. So you go 0-2, yeah. though. Wow. And then you made a huge comeback, yeah. obviously. Yeah, well, yeah. The next year we came back, and I got first, and my brother got third. But I remember we didn't have a lot of money, just like a lot of people didn't back then. And I felt, like, guilty because my dad, you know, he would, like – 
he was an iron worker. My mom was a part-time nurse and he would, he would weld trailers and make barbecue pits and stuff and smokers and everything. And he would, he would do, had a side hustle. So my dad was always very entrepreneurial. I think I got some of my drive from him for that too. But so, um, I remember apologizing to my dad on the drive home. You know, the windows were down. It was hot. We didn't have air conditioning in the car back then. A lot of people didn't. And he was like, don't ever apologize again about not winning. I don't care if you win. You guys train? Uh, did you did you compete? Yes. Did you train hard? Yes. He's like, I know you did. I sit here and watch you guys. Because we used to jump rope every night for 45 minutes. No way. And I mean, and I mean, And I mean every night for about six years. And I'm not exaggerating. Because my dad liked it because it, it created some wind. And then sometimes I would try to like wimp out and it'd be like 9.30 at night and my brother would run and get the jump rope. And I'm all like, shit. So I'd wait. And then I had to wait. And then he was done. Then I would get the jump rope. And I'd have to go until like, you know, 11 or something. But we were just so motivated to work and train. that. Um, so we did train hard for this tournament. And my dad's like, next year, train twice as hard. Next year, we're going to come here. We're going to win this thing. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting the first. My brother got third. So that was our first taste of effort works, right? Massive action works. And uh, from then, I was really hooked. You know, that's why I encourage people to push their kids. You know, you don't push them like, oh, we're going to run five miles at four in the morning on a Saturday. I'm just saying when they're crying under the bleachers after – after their freshman year at state and they say they want to train year round and they sign up for a, a twice a week training program and they try not to go, you as a parent say, no, you get in the car, we're going, you push them to fulfill that work ethic, right? Now you're not going to make them train eight hours a day for seven days straight. I'm not talking about, you know, some of these, these crazy uh, stories. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah. But you got to push your kids because once you push them, then they start pushing you once they see the benefits. We have a kid, Ryan Meek, one of my favorite little wrestlers. He, he, his dad, he's been in our room for about four years now. He has, what, four-time finalist. He's one of the past three years. So he's a freshman this year. Um, his dad said, man, there's times I'm sitting on the couch and, you know, I'm like wanting to take a nap. And he, Ryan walks up with his backpack on his shoulder and says, hey, we're going to go to Perler now. He's like, yep, oh, we're going to leave in 10 minutes. He's like, I'm like, he's pushing you. He's like, yeah, just like you said, Nick, these kids will drag us. Once we drag them a little bit in the beginning, they, you know, people like to win. So, uh, you know, that, that, that was kind of a, a pivotal moment for me. Number one, that my dad didn't guilt trip us for losing. I was just going to say and that. Number, yeah. Yeah. And number two, that he, he said, next year we're going to come back and win it. And I was like, I can do it, you know, because you know, I mean, we just weren't good enough at the time. And sometimes parents, I don't know I'm rambling, but sometimes parents say, hey, Nick, what did my kid do wrong? And I go, he didn't do anything wrong. They go, well, he lost the match. I'm like, the other kid's better right now, right? Just because you lose doesn't mean you did something wrong. Somebody's just a step and a half ahead of you. And over a six-minute match, that's eight points, right? You're closer, you know? You just don't get turned next match. Now it's 5 nothing. You get the first takedown instead of them. You know, now you're only losing three to two. So it's so easy to close the gap just for a little bit of a technical adjustments and, and tactical adjustments and improvement and experience. Uh, but every time you lose doesn't mean you did something wrong. As long as you train for a tournament, um, you know, you should be excited to move forward. And that's the one thing that I, I learned from my dad. Well, I also think the, there's a big fallacy in judging improvement by wins and losses. Because I could say you wrestle yeah. someone who's no good. 
Yeah, maybe you teched him. Yeah. But did you get any better? You know, so. Um, but the one thing your yes. dad did for you, and it, I, you said it in passing, but it's so important, is he, like, gave you the belief that you could be a national champion. And some parents just don't believe that for their kids, and so the kids don't believe that. And so you had this kind of limitless belief of what you could do coupled with the, the work ethic and drive. Was there ever a time yeah. when you were in, like, high school where you didn't feel like working out or were you always just completely obsessed with it? Oh, always completely obsessed. In fact, I overtrained, and that was probably the biggest mistake. This was I, I was a chronic overtrainer. There's a story about Barry Davis and how Gable had to learn to pull him off the mat some. Uh, I, I was like that. I, I, I would get so obsessed. And I, I usually didn't – I usually was better – uh, in the beginning of the year and then the end, I, I basically didn't know how to just relax and enjoy the moment. And that's the reason I'm a big Hale Sanderson fan is because he teaches these guys, you know, not really to pace yourself because it's something that you don't really need to do consciously, but I think that, you know, things are going to work out in the end. Uh, you know, Tim Cross used to say he got better when he started listening to his body and saying, today I'm not working out, I need a day off, especially when he got older. My brother, you know, he ended up being top 10 in the world and wrestling the world championships a couple times. He stuck with wrestling after uh, we graduated. I got married and went into grad school and, and kind of hung up, uh, hung it up. He stuck with it. And uh, my brother said, man, I'm way better now because I'm kind of training myself a little bit. And, you know, he had people around him he used to train with, um, uh, Sean Charles a lot, Cole a lot, and some of these guys, and just these top coaches at the Olympic Training Center and stuff. And you know, they they educate you, right? Yeah. So uh, there well, is something there is something to be said for overtraining, and uh, you know, I think that's a problem. But um, yeah, I was always extremely driven. Never had a problem. Still don't. I love work. I never want to retire. Um, I just love work. But you know, that was ingrained in me as a kid because my dad was like, "You're a perler. Perlers are known for being the hardest workers." on the planet and that's just kind of something that's always been ingrained in my mind is that I have like this this image that I have to be an, a, a, a tremendous worker and it's not like I work because I have that image but that was just kind of like you know it's like a guy that gets up and runs every day his buddy says why do you get up and run every day and he goes I'm a runner so I run right some people are workers they just love it I like staying busy and um you know, I was always like that, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of kids out there like that. But uh, nowadays, you get that kid has the, the they can watch all the Kale Sanderson matches on the internet, right? That goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. There used to be a disconnect between the kids who are motivated and how to how to how to actually get somewhere. Now there's not. It's pretty exciting. Very exciting, and you took your your you and your brother took your drive in your in your, your technical skills did really well in high school you multiple time state championships maybe only lost a couple times i think i read did you guys ever bump up yeah. against sammy hansen at that time because he was from missouri too yeah we used to go at it a lot so uh we had we wrestled uh, youth middle school high school and college so we butted heads a handful of times each each uh, level, you could say. Really? So were you guys more like training partners or more enemies at that time, would you say? Uh, I would say enemies, Sammy and I. Um, I was or more – Sam's one of the guys that kind of has to hate you in order to compete against you. I was never really like that. Um, but I do know that the years we were, we were butting heads, uh, you know, we used to hang out some as kids and spend the night and, you know, go fishing and stuff. But uh, – 
So we were training partners slightly. I would say a couple months maybe when I was 12, and that was basically it. My brother and him trained some after college when they were uh, training for the world teams and stuff. Actually, a lot. And I went to some training camps they had uh, at OU when Tony and Sammy were both coaches at OU and uh, trained with those guys and some bit. Sammy and I were pretty much just mortal enemies because he and I were always in the same age and weight. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we went at it quite a bit. I think like three, three or four times in college. What about in high school? Ever in the Missouri State Finals or anything like that? I was class four. I was class three. Okay. Yeah, so we had uh, we went at we went at it in some dual meets and stuff. Man, and, uh, he beat me the last match we wrestled. I had about a thirteen year winning streak against him though. So we <laughs> we had a, we we he beat me the last match we had. It was a freestyle match, and I think in '93. But I beat him every time in high school, every time in college, every time in middle school, and all but once in, in youth wrestling. I just kind of had an had an edge over him. But see, he was always a brawler. And my mentality always was, if I can take the beating, I can beat him. Because I knew he was going to headbutt me and just try to beat me up. And I always tried to hold position and slick in, right, slick him. So that was always my phrase was, if I can take the, be- if I can take the beating, I can win. And, you know, and that kind of had, uh, you know, but he took that power wrestling, go, 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 just beat people up, wrestle hard approach. And he made it work because he was a world champion. But also understand that you look at pound for pound, him and the Brands brothers and some of these other people who wrestled that way, they really, pound for pound, are probably among the most powerful human beings on the planet, right? Yeah. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating. No, yeah. The most powerful humans on the planet. So when you look at Jordan Burroughs, you know, I remember John Smith, he even, the first few years of coaching, he tried to make all of us wrestle like him. And I think it helped me. My dad thought Oklahoma State ruined us. He was not a big fan. He, didn't, he thought my brother wasn't wrestling as well. And uh, my brother ended up being an NCAA champ, you know, and I was the All-American and earned the number one ranking in the nation my junior and senior year. So I, did, I had a lot of success, but Oklahoma State was perfect for me. But John Smith, you know, even to this day, says, you know, he, his mistake starting out was trying to make people wrestle like him. And uh, that's one reason I'm, I'm so um, – vocal about not about coaches not forcing a wrestling style on their athlete because back in the Iowa day when the Iowa was just you know a physical style see they can actively recruit kids who already fit that mold Oklahoma State you know back in the day uh, you know they used to they used to say um, Myron Roderick told me goes First thing I do is I grab a, I sit a kid on the couch, I grab his ankle, I pull his sock off, and I see if he has skinny ankles. That was his thing. He wanted somebody because he said, if you have skinny ankles, you're fast. So, but, you know, I think especially back in the day, these colleges could, they can look at 10 prospects and pick the one or two or three that fit their mold, right? You can't do that as a high school or youth coach. And most colleges can't do it. And I don't think colleges even even try to nowadays. Not anymore, yeah, I don't think so. No, it, I don't even try to nowadays, but I think that um, a forcing a style is very dangerous. But I think that, the, that you know, certainly John Smith can get away with a style that works specifically for him. Uh, Henson and Brands can work for a style that they're, they're outliers. Uh, as, you know, some Kendall Cross was an outlier. His balance and, and flexibility is, is second to none. I used to wrestle with Kendall a lot in college. I mean, it's the most frustrating thing in, on the whole planet. 
his balance is just it's it's sickening. He has to be possibly one of the one of the one of the best athletes on the planet. But see, Kendall even says he had to develop a style of wrestling that was not fast and explosive. And he even said, because, you know, he, he'd done some clinic sports and he stayed at our house a few times and he was like, he even felt like he got shunned sometimes in middle school because the coaches always gravitated towards the explosive fast kid. And he felt like he, he didn't fit in. And Askrens were the same way. They said, we developed a style of wrestling for people who are, um, don't have all the flat, fast twitch muscle fiber, right? Exactly. So I, I think wrestling is very cool in that way. It's the, uh, but the whole um, style, a lot of it has to do with your God-given abilities, and you can't push that off on someone else. But I love how there's so many ways to win in wrestling. And the podcast yeah. we just did with Anthony Robles went live on Tuesday. What another example of another yet another way to win. You know, there's so many ways to win in wrestling, which is what I love about it. Now, yes. when you got to Oklahoma State, they had not won in 15 years, but there was still a cast of characters who would be world champs, Olympic champs. Obviously, John Smith was in the middle of his run. When did you get to Stillwater? Okay, so this is how it all happened. When I was a fresh, when I was like in eighth grade, maybe a ninth grade, we went to the world team trials because back then Team USA didn't send kids to the cadet and world and junior worlds and uh, you know. Um, uh, these various tournaments. So, but there was one. So there was a trial. And so it was the Cadet Pan Ams. Me and my brother tried out, and we both made the team. And uh, I got to be on the team with with guys I used to look up to, and even compete against some as kids. But I used to. I told you I used to look at the results. And then I finally started looking at the results, and my name was in USA Wrestling Magazine. And it was so exciting. Whenever I couldn't get motivated to go train, I would grab the USA Wrestling publications, and I would, I would scroll through, and I had my name highlighted. And I was ranked third, or I got third at a tournament. Or maybe that year I won the Kids Nationals. <laughs> and I look at the other results when, you know, uh, Pat Tossie won, and, and, and I didn't. And then the next year, you know, I guess we beat him. I don't know what it was, but... So as far as me, um, I, I have, I've always been into the rankings. Some people think rankings don't matter, but they always did to me, right? So uh, we went to the Cadet World Team Trials. It's actually our, our chance was to compete in the Pan Ams. My brother and I made the team, and a guy named Bruce Burnett, he was a high school coach, right, in Idaho. Really? So here's Bruce Burnett. Yeah, Bruce Burnett's the head coach of our team. And I'm on the team with, Pat, with uh, Carl Belfer, Damon Johnson, Keith Nix, uh, Mark Deal, some of these these former wrestler greats, right? And uh, quite a few others. So um, we, Bruce Burnett liked us because my brother and I were like, again, we're a workhorse. We show up early, we stay late. Some of these other guys, I'm not going to name names, but they, they snuck out, they were partying, and they actually got sent home, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a fiasco. Team USA goes into Colombia, South America, and we were being guarded with AR-15s and stuff. It was kind of spooky because that was back when the gorillas were really active, and uh, they lived up in the mountains, and they were really active with, you know, tormenting the communities and stuff. So, uh, you know, but my brother and I didn't, so here we go. Guess what? After my sophomore year, Bruce Burnett becomes the head coach, head assistant at Oklahoma State. And because Oklahoma State used to do camps out in Idaho all the time, and Bruce was there, he became friends with Joe C. And I think they might have even known each other back in the Cal State Bakersfield time in California. I don't know that for sure. But so now when it comes time to recruit, we had impressed this man who was a high school coach who 
he ended up being a recruiter and the head assistant coach at Oklahoma State, and then that was one of the main reasons we got recruited. And then Jim Shields was an Oklahoma State All-American, and he was one of the assistants at Mizzou. And my brother and I used to go to some training camps in there uh, with Wes Roper, who was a former coach, who was an awesome man. Yep. And uh, so Jim Shields knew me and Tony and knew us to be um, tremendously dedicated and having a, a tremendous work ethic. And so, you know, those two kind of – that's the reason I ended up going to Oklahoma State um, back, you know, from the obscurity of a, of a little town in Missouri. Um, that's how it happened. I made a team, and, um, you know, the rest is sort of history. So I ended up at Oklahoma State in 1989. I gray-shirted. My brother's my identical twin. He was a red shirt. I took a year off to get bigger. And, uh, you know, so I was technically on the Oklahoma State campus for six years, and he was on the campus for five. And you were there at a time, and this is kind of looked over now. No one really talks about it, and I think it was because yeah. everyone was doing it, but Oklahoma State, for some reason, got their, their wrist slapped. But there were some suspensions, and the team had to sit out. So it was kind of a turbulent time to be there. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, John terrible. Smith, ter- terrible time, right? I- I've heard yeah. – I've never actually spoke with Alan Freed, but I heard an interview with him when I was getting ready for the – He's a good dude, man. I'd love to have him on, he was man. my roommate. I'd love to have him he on. He's my roommate. Tom Brands has the utmost respect for that guy. He, I mean, he says he was a phenom. I mean, what what was that kid's mystique coming into college? Was he just on another level? Yeah, so basically, so me and Al had known each other since kids, right? And my mom and his mom, they were from Ohio, but they just hit off. They were kind of friends at tournaments and stuff. That was before cell phones and texting and social media. Right. Yeah, um, so I was always a friend with Al, I guess, three or four years in, in middle school and, and even some into high school and bumping into them at tournaments and stuff. So here I am at Oklahoma State, and we hear the recruiting Alan Freed, and he comes for a college visit, and uh, it was pretty exciting. We got to hang out with him and his mom. I think they actually stayed with me at my house during their college visit. But uh, anyway, he signed because he felt like he already wrestled sort of the Iowa style, and he felt like for his development, he would be better off going to Oklahoma State, where it was more of a technical style of wrestling. And that's the reason he went. But yeah, so he, if I remember correctly, the match was on YouTube. He wrestled John. He entered the Olympic trials as a junior in high school and wrestled John Smith. And I think he even might have scored on John. What? But he beat, yeah, he beat two or three NCAA champions while he was still in high school. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. At wow. At least two. Yeah, he beat at least two. He was before then the Kerry Colat phenom came just a couple years later. There were kind of two freaks back in that day. One was Alan Freed and one was Kerry. And, uh, yeah, so Al, comes, Al ended up coming onto our team. He redshirted. And then that summer, my brother won the Espoir Nationals and got to compete overseas. I was actually second. I was um, uh, beating Bidlock, who I never beat. I was up by one and he pinned me. Against so two? Bidlock made the team. Dan Bidlock. Hmm. Don't know that name. A freak. No, he won. He was a world. He was a good World Games champ at 105. But once they jacked with the weight classes, it kind of it ruined his career. But uh, so Alan Free goes out there, and he texts one of our guys, Chuck Barbie, who was I think third in the NCAs that year. What? And Alan's 19 years old. Yeah, because Alan was a young graduate. He's still 18. He's a college freshman, a redshirt at 18. And then we had a kid, Chris Owens, who had. Who had beat? Who didn't start that year because he was behind Chuck? But he had beaten kids who were ranked fourth in the nation, and he tech he tech Chris also. So I mean, Alan Freed was a freak, dude. 
Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And what, what jumped yeah. out is when I was reading the article about him, he would just said how how chaotic it was at Oklahoma State at that time and how one year he was just kind of hanging around his apartment, him and Pat Smith, and they, they just agreed to go to the Midlands randomly. And that's the year he pinned Tom Brands in the Midlands finals. It's just crazy yeah. to think that such a great program was in such uncertainty. And then John Smith becomes the head yeah. coach. What do you remember – or what do you take away from your time uh, with John Smith, both wrestling him and and from his from his coaching style? Yeah. So uh, basically, when I got there in '89, I was a gray shirt. So I would work out in the mornings with with, with Corey Bays, who was ranked number two in the nation, but ended up fourth, I think, twice. And then in the evenings, I could not wrestle with the team uh, because I was a gray shirt. <clears throat> but I would train with John a lot, about twice a week. And uh, you know, John wow. used to get stood up a lot. And people, and so I think John liked me because I would work. And so, what I do you mean to, he gets stood uh, up? Like people would not show up for a workout? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I remember one time it was it was about eleven fifteen at night, and we were at Corey Bates' house. It was kind of a party, right? And John shows up with uh, Rico Chepo, who's a two timer from Iowa. They were buddies. They had some camps or something, or maybe a training camp. They flew in, and John's like, "Hey, I need to go get a workout in." And Rico's like, "I'll go with you." Uh, he just wanted to like bike and sauna. And John asked if I would go train with him, and I did. And it was like 11.15 at night, and I'm not exaggerating. So we went and trained for about 1.15 in the morning, and I got made fun of the next day by some teammates for kissing John's butt. And I'm like, I don't kiss anybody's butt. I go, I want to be, uh, I want to be a, 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 a world champ. I want to be NCAA champ. John didn't use me. I used him. I go, if he wants to work out, I'm work- I get a chance to work out with, a, with, a, with a, a guy that just won the Olympics. I'm doing it, you know. So I, I, I always was loyal to John, but he was always helpful towards me. And so I was very fortunate. The last couple of years of, of uh, my career, I didn't even work Oklahoma State camps very much. I worked John Smith camps. And so I would jump in the car on a plane with John, and we'd drive out, and we'd do his camp circuit. And he and I would have a hard drill in the morning and then a quick drill in live wrestling at night. And uh, uh, I got to spend a lot of time with John, and it became a, became a, 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 he was a, a mentor and a friend and a workout partner. So I learned so much about wrestling from getting to hang out with that guy in the summers. And uh, I remember my mom would get kind of upset because my brother would come home for the summers and I would only come home for three days and I would go back because John was still training at, back then. And uh, which was pretty much, you know, Stillwater was pretty empty. The wrestling room was kind of empty because the guys were all training, but they were back home for about a month or a month and a half yeah. once camps was over. And, uh, Wait, so you're at a a party your freshman year. John Smith and Rico Ciparelli walk into the party at at like 11 o'clock? Yeah, they had just gotten in town because uh, John was was roommates with Corey, and it was a a party at Corey's house. Corey Bates was having kind of a a get-together, right? Yeah. But, I mean, like Rico Ciparelli, the – what was his name? The Baltimore – God, I can't think of it right now. The Baltimore Butcher. I don't know. He was on G – yeah, he was on GQ magazine or something. Though he became a model after that. But yeah, his actually his his girlfriend's son came to my camp somewhere before last. It was super cool. So, but he really was an Iowa guy though. You know, stuff. I can't believe there was like the inter- intermingling of Iowa guys in Oklahoma State back then. Yeah, I I, I don't think that's always the case. I, I think it is, uh, but I do think that that you 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 can put the swords down a little bit. And yeah, there's a mutual respect, you know. But I do think that once you're out of college. And you're hanging out at training camps with, with, with dudes, and you're like, I guess John and Rico became good friends. I mean, 
who cares about college wrestling? Exactly. They're trying to win world titles, and they're just buddies. You know how it is. Totally. What did you? Uh, yeah. I mean, what about outside of the technical aspect, which that's you know hours and hours worth of a conversation? What about the men- mental side of things of of uh, that you learned from Coach Smith? Yeah, he always preached, and I always struggled in this in this area because I. I have, I was one of those guys, I grew up in a kind of a, a volatile household. Uh, we reacted emotionally to everything, everything. My dad did, I mean, everything. And it wasn't until I was like 35 years old that I learned to kind of calm down. You know, my wife was like, you, you ruined your wrestling career. You're, you're about to ruin your marriage. You're going to ruin your business because I just wanted to, I was one of those guys that would just drive myself to the top and then right into a concrete wall. You know, I didn't know how to, I, if I had, if I lost, I, I, I would be like in depressed, like for days. And I wanted to win so bad. I was, I was kind of ignorant and desperate, you know, I wanted to win so bad. And, uh, I was, I wanted that, that I remember one time John getting mad at me because I was like digging underhooks the whole practice. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I watched Zayev. And that's who John used to compete against that wrestling when John did the gold medal uh, at the Google Games, his first big out- breakout tournament. And he's like, you got to quit trying to, you know, quit watching other people wrestle. So he was like, you are not allowed to watch any wrestling besides your own wrestling films. He goes, Nick, when you're in practice and we're going three-man groups, I want you staring at the floor. You can't even watch any of your teammates, you know? Wow. Yeah. But one thing John was, was, was he understood how you have to focus on what do you need to do to be successful? You. And he mastered that. And he told me many times, he goes, Nick, uh, my confidence comes from because I look at my physical abilities, my quickness and my level changing and my ability to wrestle low to the ground and my flexibility. He goes, I seriously think I have developed a style of wrestling that fits my body, that if I implement that style correctly, no one should ever be able to beat me. And I think Jordan Burroughs is sort of on those lines too, right? He's developed a style of wrestling. He won't tie up, you know, he doesn't tie up ear to ear, and he doesn't underhook. Now, I'm our underhooks because it fits him, you know? And so I think that's one thing I learned from John was was that. But, uh, also about this emotionally, he goes, you have to learn to let things roll off of you. And he was like, let it roll off you. Not that he didn't get mad and punch a wall sometimes, um, you know, if he gave up a takedown because he did snap just like all humans do. But I think he was he had an ability to stay focused and not have an emotional reaction. You know, that's a big Bruce Lee uh, quote about not having an emotional reaction to everything that happens to you. And I think I learned that from John Smith. The last thing I learned was his ability to, to, to double and triple down. You know, we used to shoot pool a lot, and I sucked, but he was really good. And I remember seeing him, my younger brother Josh uh, was at Oklahoma State for a year, and he shot pool with John and all of us one time. He's like, he's the one that pointed out, Josh was like, man, you can learn more about winning and wrestling by playing pool with John than you can by wrestling with him, you know? How's that? Because, because if he had to think three in a row, he would freaking do it. It was like a, a, a tenth level of focus. It was unbelievable. I remember years ago um, talking to his wife, Tony, at Tulsa Nationals. I guess JoJo was like 10 or 12, and he was, and she said, oh, he's on the phone crying, you know, and, and talking to his dad. And 
And apparently the story that she told me was he was screaming at his dad and saying, you're the best wrestler in the world and you won't even help me. Now, now understand he had like NCAA champions coaching him at the Cowboy Wrestling Club, right? So, and, and John apparently, and she said, John's philosophy is this. You don't need my help right now, son. This is when I help you. When you have to get a takedown and you go get it, when you have to get an escape and you get it, once you learn to do that, then I help you. Until you learn to do that, you don't need my help. And that was, that was the conversation that Tony said that John had with JoJo. And oh my I think that's God. something. <laughs> yeah. So it's he was just, like saying, uh, hey, if just, you can't do the uh, basics, like there are plenty of people that can help you with, not even the basics, but like getting a takedown in a clutch situation. There are plenty of people that can help you do that. So until you can do that, it's well, not even worth it my mind. time. Yeah, I think he was mostly saying double, triple, quadruple focus. Because what do you do when you have to have a takedown? The first thing that pops in your head is, oh, my God, what if I don't? Oh, how much time is left? Oh, he's backing up. He's backing up. And you're like, dude, the kid took six inches of a step back. You, you said he ran off the mat. He didn't. Watch the film. You know, but you have, you're out there reacting emotionally, thinking everything's ten times worse. I think what John was trying to say was, it's almost like a level of focus. When you have to get an escape and you get it or a takedown, then I help you, you know? Wow. Not, not that technique didn't have something to do with it, but I think that a lot of it, we, we have the technique and skills to score when we need to or absolutely have to, but a lot too oftentimes we don't because we step on our, we get in our own way by, by not tripling down on our level of focus. That, you know, those are a few things I learned from John. Uh, and just tons of technique stuff. Unbelievable. Yeah, and that's I'm sure that can go on forever. And I mean, and getting back to yeah. your career, you had it's kind of hard to follow. And I I, I don't think we need yeah. to go into all the details. But like you had a red shirt. You had a like a yeah. I don't. Know, there was like two or three red shirts, and there was this NCA sanction. Bottom line was going into your senior year, you were number one in the country. But I heard you yeah. say something that kind of caught my ear in a past interview. You said that like by the time January of your senior year hit you were starting to get so tight and you just wanted it to be yeah. over. Talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, so my career sort of, it all came down to one opportunity. So I gray shirted and I beat four. Uh, there was like four all Americans that I beat that year during the gray shirt year. Cause I could still wrestle open tournaments as long as I didn't wear Oklahoma state stuff and paid my own way. Then I red shirted and there was a few more all Americans, right? Then my brother did not place that year as a starter. Then my freshman year I had, uh, under ranking, I beat the number two ranked guy right off the bat at the Vegas tournament, ended up being ranked number four. But I was cutting down to 118, and right now I weigh 153. And back then, if I let my weight go, I easily would have been over one, you know, close to 140. So it was, it was, it was terrible. And so that my freshman year, I just hated wrestling. I was cutting too much weight. I was miserable. Uh, sophomore year, I was ineligible, NCA sanctions. Uh, my grades were good. It was just the, part of the NCA investigation over Oklahoma State. Me and my brother and Chuck Barbie lost that year. Chuck was ranked number two in the nation, but he was a fifth-year senior, so he was done. My brother was a redshirt junior. He was third as a redshirt sophomore behind Kilburn Brand. So he was ranked number two in the nation, I think, that year, maybe three. So he lost his junior year, and then that was my redshirt sophomore year, right? So we both we lost that, and I just trained with John a lot, straight freestyle. Uh, and then my redshirt junior year, I could compete. That's when the entire Oklahoma State team was uh, was declared ineligible. 
So, you know, me and my brother and Chuck got, got punished uh, twice. Once, and then the whole team, yeah, twice, technically. Then the next year, the team got punished. So my junior year, my brother uh, was an NCAA champ. He beat Sean Charles. And, at Nebraska, uh, in the finals. Though. Yeah, he, my brother transferred at, at, at semester. And, and Sean had one loss going to the NCAA finals, and that was to me. So I had a good junior year, and, but I couldn't compete. So te- I was unofficially ranked number one in the nation my, my, sophomore, my junior year. Then my senior year, I was ranked fourth. I beat uh, Sanchero Abe uh, right off the bat, got the number one ranking, kept that. And I remember being so tight because it's like, it was like I just didn't have – I think if I had had my sophomore and junior year to go through the grind of a season – and even my freshman year, I got jacked with continually. For example, one time I was supposed to go up and wrestle against Mizzou, and I, was, I got out almost to the arena, and they stopped me. They go, you cannot walk into the arena. You have to go back downstairs. And so one of the uh, attorneys for Oklahoma State and our trainer took me back downstairs, and they were on the phone with the NCA, can Perler wrestle or not? And boom, I'm not exaggerating. The dual meet was delayed about 10 or 15 minutes, and they said, Perler can't wrestle. Oh, my I, God. I, w- I was on a bus as a freshman going to OU for a dual meet. They pulled the bus over and took me off and put me in the car with the trainer and said, Perler's not allowed to be on the, on the team bus. And but then they said, you can wrestle. So I had to make weight, and I was wanting to punch a wall. And then they said, you can't wrestle, and you can't ride home with the team. So I was getting jacked with continually. I was supposed to go to Midlands my redshirt freshman year. And then they said, you can't. Then Joe C said, hey, I got clearance. Uh, and I was down. I had just got done from my mom's basement cutting weight. My, and uh, and my, uh, then Joe C called and goes, Nick, you, can go, you, can get, you can't go to Midlands. It's too late to get in, but I got a tournament in Oregon I'm going to fly you to. And I remember this, I cussing them. I'm like, I'm not doing it. This is stupid. I and mean, I just got jacked with continually. What my was the whole thing year. over? Like some some summer camps, and it was like something yeah. that happens so anyway. Yeah. So basically, when I was a red a gray shirt, so technically I took a year off after high school, and I was a student on campus, but I could take no more than like um, eleven credit hours the entire year, five and six, right? And I could not practice with the team, but I could go to open tournaments. So I was basically on college campus before technically I'm still a recruitable athlete, right? But, and I worked camps for Oklahoma State. So that, that's, that was a big no-no. And that basically is why I got jacked with off and on my entire freshman year, lost my sophomore year, lost all postseason wrestling my junior year, and then I, I, I had a, a free and clear opportunity to compete my, my senior year. And, again, I, I – I, at the all-star match, the guy that won my bracket, I took him down like four times and I, I still wasn't wrestling great, but I really felt like I'm going to win the national title this year, you know, especially doing so well leading up to that sort of unofficially. Right. Uh, and I just got so tight. And I remember John, he wanted to help me so bad. They, like I'd be at practice and I'd look and he'd always be staring at me. And he'd be like, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to bust this match open. I remember one time in practice, I just sat down I'm a grown man. I just started crying. He's like, what's wrong, Nick? What the hell is going wrong? And I was like, I was just like broke. I was so stressed, right? Because I just, I think everything came to this one real opportunity. And I just wanted to win so bad because my brother won the year before. And uh, yeah, so the bottom line is, I, I, John's like, you're wrestling tight, you're wrestling tight. He was like, you should be beating these guys by eight points. Open up. You know, if, you, if you let a wrestler opponent in, a, in, in, in the match with you, 
They're going to come back and beat you. You cannot keep doing this. And, but you know, it's like, it's like I was just like on a downward spiral. And uh, I was interested because I remember seeing Chris Perry after his junior year of winning the NCAAs. And it's kind of funny because my wife and I've been dating since like 19, 18 years old and her and, uh, uh, Chris and Chris and Mark Perry's mom are still really good friends. Kathy, that's John's John's sister, right? Yep, yep, so we used yep. to baby we used to babysit Mark and Chris Perry all the time because we owned our own house and my wife lived with me and and uh, so we used to babysit Chris and Mark all the time. To, so I see Chris on some video run under the tunnel after his junior year and he starts hugging Mark and he's saying it's over, it's over, and I was like, that's me. See, I think that. I never talked to Chris about this, but it seems like he probably had so much, he wanted to win so bad that I know for me, certain times in my career, I wasn't happy when I won. I was relieved that, that I didn't lose, you know? And, and when Nick, I saw that Chris Perry interaction, I was like, dude, that was my problem. Now Chris won and then he won it again the next year. So he obviously had some mental toughness that I didn't have access to uh, 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 between my ears. But I like Kale Sanderson because Kale Sanderson seems to teach opposite of that. Enjoy the wind. Don't, you know what I'm saying? If oh, that makes totally. Sense. So there's two things that I yeah. have to hit on. One, Chris was on this podcast, and he said that exact same thing. He, he won the yeah. NCAA tournament his junior year without getting a takedown. That's how tight he was. And he was just so uncomfortable and overwhelmed that – he was so yeah. ready for it to be done. So that was That's one of the way I was didn't work out for me though. <laughs> but so. I mean, to your point though, it's like any one of those matches could have gone the other way, but you no, know, to this day, that's one of the top 10 most listened to podcasts is Chris Perry on here. And then the second thing is, he's a man. I love that guy. You're, he knows wrestling inside and out. Oh my God. You're um, spot on though with the Penn state thing and how they wrestle so freely and openly. And it's like, yeah. they're, they're kind of a black... not getting in your own way. What's that? You need to have Mark Schwab on your podcast. Mark Schwab, I hired him to, 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 to mentally coach my son, right? So Mark was uh, – he's a trained sports psychologist, and uh, he used to be the, the head assistant at, uh, under J-Rob, who's one of my idols, uh, at, uh, at, at University of Minnesota. And I got to know Mark a little bit just through um, some of his posts on Twitter and stuff. And uh, my, soft, my son's sophomore year – did great probably could have done better and i was trying to and he was like i'm not getting a sports psychologist i'm not having anybody help me whatever i was like dude i just, i needed one we didn't have one back then you know anyway so his junior year right off the bat my son loses to three kids he should not have all in one weekend boom i called mark hired him told my son it's not an option two weeks later my son beats the number one ranked guy in the state and uh terrible coaching uh terrible officiating call cost him the state title his junior year um but that's a different story. Uh, uh, actually, probably a retaliation against me for 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 things. But uh, it changed my son's career, you know. But, but uh, you know the whole psychology side of wrestling that you see with Kale Sanderson and some of these great coaches. Um, the 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 guy out there who has it figured out is Mark Schwab, and uh, so he I hired him to train my son's mind for two years, and uh, Mark Schwab is the man. He, would love to have uh, him a lot man. yeah yeah he's the man but, um he does talks and stuff uh to like professional salesmen and everything but uh yeah so a lot of the things you hear kale sanderson talk about are the same kind of training tactics and, and mindset sort of stuff because a lot of the mindset stuff still to this day is wrestle tough 
be willing to step on someone's throat, be willing to break their willpower and all that. And I, that sounds cool, but at some point in time, you know, John Smith used to say, if you can't keep me off your left leg, you can't beat me. That is how simple this sport is, guys. Now you better get back to drilling because you think your single leg is good. It's not. Boom. That's it, right? Seriously. And I, there's, but I know we're at the... the... But you have to be in the mental state to, to be able to hit a single leg, right? And Chris Perry and myself and so many others, you, if, if you're not relaxed, you're not... Uh, Mark Perry... Uh, um, Mark Schwab calls it a healthy mental climate. You have to have a health, you have to be within a healthy mental climate in order to see the single leg and hit it without fear, right? And so I think that's the one reason that Kale Sanderson's guys are, are, are so good is their ability to execute because they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not tight and poisoning their own, own, own bodies with um, these negative thoughts. Man, it seems like they're so, they're focused more so not on winning and losing, but on, I hate to use this pun word because it drives me nuts, but wrestling their best style, but really just comes down to constantly improving and the result will take care of itself. Now, I know we're at the top of the hour and I have so much more to talk about, so I won't do it on this one, but it's a couple questions as we wind down I have to know about because I have to know about, so after the Nationals your senior year, you had to be in a, just a brutal headspace. How did you, like, how did you kind of come out of that and get to the point where you founded the Perler Academy? Because anyone listening can relate to being depressed at one point or another. And a lot of people may be too macho to admit it, but I've heard you admit it and it can help a lot of people who are in there. So like, let's just start like the very rock bottom and tell, and then how you got to a point where you were able to, to get back on your feet. Yeah, so, well, well, basically, once I was done with wrestling, uh, I decided to get go into grad school and exercise physiology uh, because my ultimate goal was to become the, the number one strength and conditioning coach in, in, in America for the sport of wrestling. Uh, I'm, I'm super into that kind of stuff. Uh, things change. I ended up getting not doing grad. I ended up dropping out of grad school. Uh, the, ultimately, I took about three years off, right? It wasn't even around wrestling. Uh, Mark Perry uh, made me coach his son, Little Mark, at the state tournament one year, and I was like, "Dude, I hate wrestling. I just want to be away from it." You know, it was like a, I had it's like eight months after uh, you know the NCAs the previous year. He's like, "Dude, I'll pay you. He needs a coach. I got to go out of town." I'm like, "Dude, I'm not taking money from you. I'll, I'll definitely coach him." So I, I, I stayed with Kathy, and then we took the kids, and and I coached Mark Perry at a tournament, and that was when I kind of said, "I like wrestling." I just needed a break. And that was probably the first time I got excited about wrestling again. You know, just had to get away from it for a while. And John told me, he goes, Nick, don't retire, take six months off. Because I think that's what Kenny Monday did. He's like, don't retire, take six months off and come back. Trust me on this. Wait, why did Kenny Monday have to do that? uh, I don't know. I just think he just wanted a little bit of downtime after college. Got it. Okay. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. uh, yeah, Yeah. So basically my brother went down to my weight class. We're identical twins. He said, I'm going to go down to 125.5. If you're done wrestling, tell me now. You can't jack me around. I go, I'm done. You can have it. So once I gave the weight class to my brother, that kind of officially retired me forever, which was fine, right? So, but basically, I, I, I ended up becoming a high school teacher and a coach in Texas. I coached on there for three years. I liked it. But, uh, I always knew I was going to uh, have my own business. I've always been kind of a hard uh, had that ambition. Uh, growing up as a kid, I didn't look up to uh, famous athletes. I don't care about singers and, and, and famous 
uh, people who are famous uh, on the TV screen. I, you know, I looked up to John Hawk's parents who had like three companies. I looked up to, uh, and, and he actually had a business in high school also, made about twice what the teachers did. I looked up to this kid I knew that I was in class with, I forget his name. He, he started a law annoying business and then he had uh, some classmates working for him and uh, he was one of the first kids ever to get a big zero-turn lawnmower, and it, it was like 15 grand. I, I've always just had this sort of desire to be um, an entrepreneur, you know. It's just I think I grew up that way. My dad was always preaching on us about that. In fact, he told us one time, he goes, you guys, with your personalities, you're going to have to work for yourself because there's no way anybody's going to want to be around. <laughs> you know, around. But so uh, that, that, was, that was the reason I decided after coaching and, and getting my teaching certificate and working in Texas for three years, I just decided that now is the time I'm going to dive in. Uh, that was when Tim Sertal kind of got started with um, doing camps all over the nation. And uh, my wife's like, you've been talking about doing your own, because I always had this vision of if, if you can teach Taekwondo, because back then it was mostly Taekwondo. There was no jiu-jitsu, right? If you, can be, if you can have Taekwondo studios, why can't I have a wrestling studio? You know? And she was like, you're not happy down here in Texas. Why don't you move back? Let's move back. Uh, or, you know, let's just dive in and do this. And that's when I just decided to dive in, move back to Missouri, quit our jobs, uh, starved for about two years, and uh, just dove in and made it work, basically. And that's where we'll have to pick things up. The next time we yeah. have you on, man, because that is another 18-year journey, which I'm sure has highs and lows and self-doubt and really excitement, to, really a lot of exciting times yeah. to it. So that's a whole other thing. Um, so if you if you have some time, we'll, we'll have you back on. But, man, what a pleasure it was to have you on, Nick. Last question. Awesome. It's the same it. question we have for everybody is, how did wrestling change your life? Or more simply, what principles from the sport do you take away and use to this day? Well, I think you know, people say wrestling teaches you things. I'm not sure it teaches you. I think it mostly forces you to pull things from within you. You know, my favorite, my favorite saying is by um, uh, uh, the book of five rings, all right? It's like uh, Musashi, um, yes. Musashi, Miyamoto, whatever. He says where, um, so it's nothing outside yourself. Everything is within. Everything exists. And I used to have it on my website, but a lot of people got offended because obviously you should look outside yourself for God if you have faith. So I don't really use that very much, but I think about it all the time. And, it, and it's really interesting because what we're doing, we have a new program in our academy. We have hundreds of athletes, and I mean hundreds, 19 locations we operate right now. Uh, and we're adding five more this November. But we, we are such, we're so caught on who can I hire to make me great? And I have a phrase, you know, your teacher can't make you smart, your boss can't make you rich, and I can't make you great at wrestling. We can just give you the tools and, and environment, and that's a big part of it. But ultimately, like Jim Rohn says, you can't hire someone to do your push-ups for you. And that I think, so wrestling, I think, either it, it, ex, it exposes these things who already exist inside you. Will you bring them out? and be successful in wrestling. And I don't mean Olympic champ, right? There's more to be, I mean, you know, uh, not everyone's going to be an NCAA champ, right? But to be massively successful. You know, John Smith used to say, be top 5% in the world in everything you do. And the things that you really choose to be great at, be top 1%. And you're going to hit that number one a few times. 
right? And I think that's very important, you know, to say, well, you know, just, just because you're not an Olympic champ doesn't mean you're not successful. Or just because you're not a 12-time teacher of the year doesn't mean you're not one of the greatest teachers on the planet, right? So, uh, but, to, but to be massively successful, you're going to have to do what is required. And I think what wrestling has taught me is whatever I decide, like I'm probably one of the most organized people you will meet, but I'm completely ADD. I'm scatterbrained. Uh, but in order to operate a company, I had to become organized. My communication skills used to be crap. They're still terrible, but they're way better than they were, you know, because I listen to marketing. I listen to advertising. I've, I've read books on uh, communication, um, giving public, public speaking, because to be an entrepreneur, there are, there are um, things that are required of you. Are you willing to do those or not? And I think that's one thing that wrestling did because I started wrestling as, a, as, as, as an 11-year-old and I wasn't exposed to anything before. It just comes down to the fact that I hated lifting weights. I was losing matches because I wasn't lifting, so I started lifting. Boom. Are, you know, and that, I think that's what wrestling taught me is are you going to answer the call or not? Because no matter what you're trying to do, whether it's be a great husband, uh, be a great dad, get in shape, whatever, be a, be a great teacher, be a great coach. Things are required and you don't have to look too far. What is required is staring you in the face. Will you acknowledge it and will you master those crafts or not? And I think wrestling taught me that because um, they're like, dude, you have to do this or you will not win, period. And, and, and I would say that's what I've taken away from the sport, and it's helped me uh, in my in my journey through life. I'm almost fifty, so uh, I love that you know, notion of I love the notion of what you need to succeed. You already have inside you. I've thought about that a lot. I didn't know that that was from the book of Five Rings, but it's like it's yeah, already inside it you. You know, you already got it. Yep, it's already exists. Yep. Wow. I think so. Awesome, Nick. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day, man. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.